This is uh, Paul Vachure with Victor Lamme. And Victor uh, was just telling us about his, his theory on, on consciousness, in particular setting up a, a contrast between his approach and what's also called global, global workspace. And in some sense the starting point for you was very much the statement like, well, a correlation-based approach towards consciousness is just not going to get us there. It's not enough. Yeah. So, so, so what's the problem with correlation? Well, the problem with correlation is that you have to start out with a definition, in this case of consciousness, of which you're sure of, and then you can try to find out what what that means on the neural side. But of course the real problem with consciousness is that we don't really know on the psychological or introspective side what it really is. We don't know what we are conscious of, we don't know what consciousness really is, we don't know what it's used for. We have actually no clue of what consciousness really is on the introspective psychological behavioral side so then of course it also doesn't make any sense to just find to just try and find a neural code of that so you mean as long as we have no satisfying definition we don't know what we're correlating it with yeah that's the basic problem so my stance would be to build a definition using neuroscience. So to incorporate neuroscientific findings and neuroscientific theories inside, neuroscientific arguments, you might even say, into building, uh, well, what you might call a new definition of consciousness, which, of course, to some extent incorporates the old ideas we have about consciousness from introspection and psychology, but to some extent also overrules or overrides those intuitions by things we find out from neuroscience. But isn't there a risk that this becomes uh, circular? Because you're saying, okay, we, we don't have a satisfying definition right now, um, so l let's try to develop one looking in more detail at neuroscience, but it still would imply that you have to have at least an intuition which subset of phenomena you want to look at in order to develop this definition. So, so what's that guideline now that helps you to identify these phenomena? Yeah, the intuitions to some extent are fine. So, for example, uh, it's it's not problematic to have the intuition that, say, in deep sleep or in coma or when you have a fully masked visual stimulus, that in those situations you do not have conscious sensations. So, th th that's an intuition which, is, which works fine. And, and also at the other extreme end, when you have you know, a visual stimulus being presented and someone says, yes, I see this visual stimulus and I recognize who's in that picture, etc., etc. There's also no real reason to doubt that in that case people have conscious sensations. But it's, it's particularly in the, in, in the middle, in, in the middle ground, where you go from these clearly unconscious situations to these clearly conscious situations where we don't really know whether people are conscious, we don't even know whether we self have conscious experiences, and that's the situation uh, where you have to extrapolate from these extremes towards these, these situations in the middle, but you can only do that properly if you take into account the neuroscience, which goes along with it. Alright, so you're saying there's like this grey zone that we have to disentangle, mm -hmm. and that's where we have to include more, yeah. more constraints. Constraints from, from, of course, also from psychology and introspection, but I think even more rigorously constraints from neuroscience. If, we, if, if uh, to give an example, 
if we see all the uh, essential characteristics of neuroscientific processes which go along with situations where we clearly have a conscious person, like in when we report having a conscious person, if we see all the, all, all, all the key neural ingredients uh, of, of, of that uh, situations also happening in situations where we have doubts about whether we have conscious sensation, then, the, then we might conclude on the basis of that neuroscientific evidence alone that in those cases we probably have conscious sensations simply because the neural, the, the neural mechanisms are so similar in both situations or, or at least are similar as long as, uh, the, as, as uh, with respect to the essential ingredients of consciousness that we have to grant consciousness to situations which intuitively we might think we don't have conscious sensations like in neglect or in, in when, we, when we, uh, we suffer from inattentional blindness or attentional blink. Typically in situations where attention is removed, there you have, this is, this is, this is in particular uh, the situation where you have this gray zone of, well, what, that we need, don't really know whether we have conscious sensations or not. Right, so, so given, given that, um, this might also explain why you use change blindness as one of your, one of your paradigms. Or not? Yeah, so we, we, we use change blindness to a large extent, showing that uh, on the one hand, if you, if, if you take the change blindness results per se, you have the inclination to think that consciousness is very limited, limited only to what you attend to, that you only see a couple of objects at the same time, maybe two or three or four. Uh, whereas when you do the change blindness experiment in a different way, using the uh, let's say the iconic memory version of the experiments where you present a cue in uh, between the, the first image and the second image, you will see that there is at least evidence that people have a much richer representation somewhere inside their heads. The only thing is we don't really know whether that is a conscious representation. Now, and into trying to find out whether that is a conscious, that rich representation is a conscious representation, you could use neuroscience to try and find out whether all the essential ingredients uh, for consciousness that you do find in situations where consciousness is unequivocal, whether you also find those in the situation in in, in this uh, rich uh, representation, uh, iconic representation, and then conclude well, apparently, even though even though it's uncertain behaviorally and introspectively whether there's consciousness there, we well we have sort of forced to conclude based on neuroscience that. Indeed, people do have the, a conscious sensation there, and that, uh, as a result of that, we are forced to conclude that conscious consciousness is, is not limited and, and and only limited to what you, what attention is focusing on, and limited in respect of that it only entails about a, uh, it only holds a, a few objects, but that it's much richer, and that indeed you perceive a whole scene all at once. Are you not actually posing two questions? On the one hand, it would be like what what's the content of memory and then under what conditions and which aspects of memory are accessible to conscious experience well the you do the experiments uh, in the way you do the experiments you are addressing memory that's correct uh, but of course what that tells you is what the content of consciousness is at the moment you look because it's very difficult to really know what the content of consciousness is at the very at the very now, you know, at the moment that you look. So the only way to go about that is ask subjects, you know, what they saw when you've presented the stimulus, 
Uh, and of course, essentially, that's always about memory. But what uh, what turns out to be the case is that you have different forms of memory of a particular visual scene that you see. So you have the working memory, which is limited uh, to a couple of objects. And then you have iconic memory, which is much more widespread and, 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 and contains many more objects. Uh, and these two sorts of memory are remnants of the two different representations that you had while you were viewing the scene. While you were, while you were viewing the scene, you probably also had uh, a, a, a focused uh, representation, focused attention being focused on a, on a few objects, which uh, well, which you could, could cognitively manipulate and things like that. But at the same time, you also had a, a, a much richer representation, containing many more objects, uh, which you were not attending to and which you could not cognitively manipulate and which. Uh, which is linked to this iconic memory trace. So the memory traces tell you something about the representation that exists at the moment that you look, which is of course the real question. Mm -hmm. Then, but in the case of, of change blindness, there there might be, let's say, at some level, the change, change blindness becomes almost trivial. I mean, there are, um, let's say, given that perception means that you have to compress, you have to throw away if you want signals. To, to get to a percept, uh, so in that in that process, of course, you will there there will be, let's say, pieces of information and objects disappearing from memory, possibly, or from consciousness, because it's also a necessary ingredient of just being able to perceive the world at all. Mm -hmm. So, so so from from that perspective, you, you could argue, well, it's not a big surprise that it is a finite set, right? That both iconic memory, but also then let's say your your working memory for visual processing would be finite. So why then is it still, why then can this paradigm give you an additional insight into this interaction between perception, attention and consciousness? Well obviously the, you know, the, 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 the whenever you go from a physical stimulus falling on your retina to representation in consciousness there's some sort of compression going on and some sort of interpretation of this you know you have things like visual illusions which tell you that whatever is physically out there is not translated in a direct way into your in, in, into your uh, conscious percepts there's some there's some things like memory and previous experience and all that thing going on uh, but regardless of that what remains is that apparently in that transition from the physical physical stimulus to your to these mental representations, you have, well, so to say, different different representations, different stages. You have a representation which is rich and detailed, which is which contains more or less the whole scene, albeit in a in in a interpreted fashion, and then you have a representation which is which is related to the focus of attention, which is more limited. And you have, so you have these different representations all sitting there at the same time inside your mind. And the real unanswerable question, at least unanswerable from an introspective and behavioral point of view, is which of these representations is, is the conscious one? That's the, real, that's the real problem. And that's the thing which we cannot answer from introspection or behavior. Right. So now, there you... Um to answer now that question, you you also are introducing a, a, a fairly a specific uh, picture on how perception, visual perception, would work, right? According to a number of stages. Mm -hmm. So so, 
what are these stages exactly on the ground of what did you distinguish them? Okay, so whenever, whenever a visual stimulus is presented to our eyes, uh, basically we go through four stages of cortical processing. At first you have, a, a, let's say, a fairly shallow uh, processing, feed-forward processing by early visual areas and maybe a couple of uh, more high-level visual areas. Uh, and then following that, if a stimulus is attended, you will have <coughs> this feed-forward processing uh, penetrating all the way up to higher visual areas, motor areas, prefrontal cortex, etc. So that's a, so that's, those are the first two stages which sort of uh, which are sort of automatically executed. Uh, Feed-forward processing either in a shallow or in a uh, more extensive deep uh, fashion, depending on attention. Uh, and then after that, you have what I call stages three and four, where you have recurrent processing, which means uh, higher level areas feeding back into lower areas and then engaging in uh, re-entrant or recurrent processing. And that, and then also you can have these re-entrant processes being either of a shallow nature in the sense that they only involve, for example, a, a few visual areas, or that they grow more widespread when attention is allocated uh, to the stimuli that evoke these, stim these processes. Uh, uh, where the re-entered interactions also include frontal parietal cortex, and you have, well, what others would typically call, what others would typically call, global workspace uh, ignition, uh, amplification, and things like that. Okay, so it's it's an incrementally more complex circuit we're looking yeah. at. Yeah, and exactly. Also bringing in more and more top-down information, higher-level cognitive information. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it that way because also already in the in the feed forward activation you can reach high level areas like the prefrontal cortex and we have done some experiments showing that when you have this feed forward activation uh, of prefrontal cortex that may activate cognitive functions like uh, inhibitory control or uh, attention and things like that, uh, which tells you uh, that these feed forward activations which we think on the basis of all kinds of experiments uh, are not generating any conscious sensations that these feed forward activations these may still activate all sorts of cognitive functions like attention or cognitive control but nevertheless are unconscious and of course similarly you can have uh, recurrent interactions uh, which are either penetrating uh, deeply or not and that means that you would have conscious versions of either attention or, con or cognitive control meaning that in, our, in, in this view, consciousness and attention, or consciousness and cognitive control, or any other cognitive function, are essentially orthogonal, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that you can have both unconscious attention and conscious attention, that you can have both unconscious cognitive control and conscious cognitive control. But then in these, these four phases of processing, what's the minimal configuration that could give me a conscious percept? Yeah, so I think the, the evidence points to uh, the idea that the minimal configuration you need for having a conscious percept is that you need to have re-entrant, recurrent interactions. So stages one and two, which are uh, entirely feed-forward, uh, even, even though a stage two process may reach prefrontal areas, high-level areas, that still will be an unconscious process in the sense that you do, it's not accompanied by any conscious sensation. It's only when you go to stage three where you have re-entrant interactions or to stage four where you have widespread re-entrant interactions including frontal parietal network that you have conscious sensations. That's the, that's the idea I'm pushing forward.
but this seems to be a more necessary uh, condition for consciousness and not a sufficient one. Yeah, this, sufficient. This, this whole necessary versus sufficient uh, argument is not getting us anywhere in the sense that uh, you could always say that something is either necessary or sufficient or not necessary or not sufficient. The What, what, what I'm trying to uh, argue is that whenever you have reentrant interactions you have a conscious sensation. The only thing is that when these reentrant interactions are limited to early visual areas, you will have a visual sensation which is not linked to cognition, not linked to reportability, so you cannot report it to the outside world, you cannot store it in working memory, etc. But you would still have a conscious sensation. Uh, and of course when you when this when these recurrent interactions grow more widespread to stage four to uh, the, when they incorporate frontal parietal network, then you will have a conscious sensation which is also reportable, which you can cognitively manipulate, which you can, uh, well, which you can attend to, etc. Okay, so it means um, on, on, on the one extreme we can say, well, you don't necessarily need a pure frontal engagement to have a conscious experience. Right? This is one that's, important consequence of what you're saying. That's, yeah, that's yeah? certainly one of the important consequences. But, but that's sort of that's at the upper that's the upper bound if you want. But now at the lower bound, maybe there things are a bit more fuzzy because in some sense I could argue well, already at the level of a primary visual area, I will have dense recurrent interactions locally to the area mm -hmm. and with the thalamus and so on. So I have recurrence. Mm -hmm. However, if I would only stimulate V1, as also some studies have shown, I would not necessarily consciously experience that stimulus. So. It seems that this recurrence of a certain, of a minimal recurrence of a certain kind, must be present to them lead to a conscious experience. So, what's that minimal requirement on recurrence? Yeah, th there's probably some minimal requirement uh, which we need to add to that, mm -hmm. if you like, definition of consciousness. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what it should be. Maybe it has something to do with the amount of complexity of the interactions, as, uh, you know, a la Tononi and, 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 uh, and proposals like that. But uh, if, if, if you would ask me, basically, I would say that, you know, whenever you have reentrant interactions between visual areas, you have some sort of visual percept. Of course, it might be a very primitive visual percept, like, you know, only seeing a glimmering of light without any any cognition added to it without any, without you really knowing what what the object is without you you know robbed from any any normal sense of vision that that you would normally have but still it would be a conscious percept you know and the only thing that is added when you when the, when these reentrant interactions incorporate more visual areas let's say object selective areas or face selective areas or uh, motion selective areas what you add are more layers uh, in terms of uh, well, essentially, how beautiful the, the the visual sensation is. You know, we see you add colors, you add motion, you add you add you add shape, you add whether it's a face or not, and, and stuff like that. You know, so all this gets added to the visual percept, but that doesn't make it that that doesn't make it a more conscious visual visual percept. It only makes it a richer visual percept. But you know, in every case, it's a visual conscious visual percept. The only thing is that when when the recurrent interactions are very localized, it's a fairly poor and uh, sorry visual percept, and in the other case, it's a it's a rich and very beautiful one. Okay.
Now, in the data that you described, though, there was another aspect that, that came to the foreground where you had these um, unconsciously perceived faces that you masked out. Remember, you had these, and then yeah. you generated crosses from everything, but actually, yeah. subconsciously, a face might have been detected. Um, when you looked at that, that data, it looked like the, the main distinguishing factor was the, 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 whether there was sustained activity or not. That's true. So would you would you accept that as a second parameter where you could say, well, maybe to become a consciously uh, perceived uh, stimulus, it's I have to trigger sufficiently sustained activity to engage these recurrent circuits sufficiently, possibly even including frontal circuits, mm -hmm. to to construct the experience. Would you buy that? Well, and <laughs> the short answer is no. Uh, simply because, uh, you know, experimentally it's, it's of course very difficult to tease apart sustained activity and re-entered or recurrent activity, because you cannot have recurrent activity without it being sustained. Well, you might have well, you might have sustained activity without it being recurrent, but uh, the, at least the other way around, it's very difficult to tease those two apart. Uh, so you might argue, well, maybe it's just about the activity being sustained, which is generating the conscious percept. Mm -hmm. The only problem I have with that is that, you know, it doesn't explain anything to me. Why would why would neural activity that is more sustained give you a conscious sensation, whereas uh, activity that is less sustained would not give you a conscious That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, on the other hand, the difference between recurrent and feed-forward processing is so fundamental in the sense that recurrent activity will give you the integration of, of information or, over different areas of the brain, uh, as I've proposed in the talk, it might also give you uh, things like more synaptic plasticity being engaged and, you know, there, there, there are many fundamental differences between re recurrent activity, it will give you higher complexity of the neural networks that are involved. So there, there are so many fundamental differences between recurrent activity and feed-forward activity that I, I find some explanation in that being the difference between conscious and unconscious processing, which I totally do not find in uh, short versus sustained activity. But imagine I would be a, a global workspace person, yeah. and then in some sense I would agree with you on, on recurrent connectivity. Because I would say, no, I have, I have highly complex and differentiated and integrated um, global interactions in, in these networks, and then I could argue, and I need, at the input side of that, I need an activity of a certain duration to drive this global workspace efficiently. So if I have one of these masking tasks, so the stimulus gets suppressed, I cannot drive the global workspace circuitry sufficiently, so therefore a conscious percept cannot emerge, while if I have a more sustained activity, I can drive the global workspace and develop the consciously experienced percept. But what would be wrong with that argument? Well, of course, well, what you're saying now is that the conscious percept is not coming from the sustained activity itself, but from the sustained activity driving something else, in this case global workspace activation. Uh, so essentially what you're saying is that the conscious sensation comes from the global workspace activation. But uh, that a necessary requirement of that is sustained activity. Well, you know, I, I, we have, what I've tried to point out in the in the presentation is that you know of course you could hold the the, the case that 
you only have constant sensation when the, whenever there's global workspace activity, but, the, the, but there are a number of theoretical, scientific, and other problems with that, uh, such as that, uh, you know, th this entails that uh, for some reason it's prefrontal cortex uh, activity which is important for consciousness, which doesn't seem to have any explanatory power. Uh, it's, uh, there's, of course, lots of evidence that you can have prefrontal cortex activation without you having any conscious sensation. So again, there's no real reason to assume that you have that you need to have prefrontal cortex activation uh, for generating consciousness, or rather the other way around. You can have prefrontal cortex activation without you clearly having any conscious sensation. Uh, when you do, when you assume the global workspace activation to be essential for consciousness, you always conflate consciousness with attention, you conflate consciousness with cognitive control, and also you're not capable of dissociating consciousness from a report about consciousness. So there are lots of reasons uh, why saying that global workspace activation is the essential thing that you need for having a conscious sensation from a scientific point of view seems, well, misguided. So that's, that's an important part of your of your story, you know, where you're saying, well, global workspace is one view on, on conscious experience, and I disagree with this view on a number of, for a number of reasons that you now just summarized, yeah. and my alternative proposal is to one of, of recurrent interaction of, of some kind. So, um, but, but to what extent is your proposal not also consistent with a possible alternative interpretation of a global workspace? Because I could argue, well, these systems you point your finger to are like uh, still global workspaces, but at a smaller scale. Yeah, not well, necessarily inconsistent. Yeah. Okay, but of course, if you know, if I if I discuss this with uh, the real proponents of global workspace theory, they explicitly uh, excluded the possibility of global workspaces being possible at a more local scale because in, indeed you're right you know if you would acknowledge that you can have global workspace on a more local scale let's say only visual cortex then of course it's 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 totally similar to what I'm saying uh, but for some reason which by the way is totally mis uh, uh, a total mystery to me uh, a central tenet of global workspace theory as it has been put forward in the last couple of years is that it requires the global broadcasting of information via these prefrontal frontal parietal network throughout the whole brain, which and is which is essentially different. But that seems to be the sticky point, right? There yeah. seems much more a debate on whether this frontal parietal network mm -hmm. is a necessary ingredient of consciousness, or yeah. sufficient even, or not. Yeah, because if you would leave out this component, you could happily agree on some sort of adapted version of what you might call a workspace. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wouldn't see any reason for calling it a workspace, though. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, people more scientists more easily use each other's tooth, toothbrush than each other's terms. So, mm -hmm. uh, but aside from that, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, why not? You know, okay. Yeah. That's so true. from now on, you talk about the, the visual workspace. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But then the other the other thing before getting to the to the conclusions here. Um, what I found very interesting is that you also really started to, 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 to push this notion of feed-forward and recurrent down to, 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 to uh, the neural substrate to the level of actually receptor types and so yeah. on. Yeah. So, so can you maybe explain that a little bit? Yeah, so let's say from a theoretical point of view we had the, well, let's say hunch that 
there might be differences in the in the in the molecular machinery that is used for feed-forward processing as opposed to uh, recurrent processing, and in particular that recurrent processing, you know, because it satisfies heparol and stuff like that, uh, would be more prone to induce processes related to synaptic plasticity, NMDA receptor activation, and stuff like that. So uh, we did some experiments, uh, well, to sort of verify this hunch, and indeed we found that in monkey visual cortex. Uh, the recurrent signals are, uh, well, almost abolished when you apply NMDA receptor blockers like APV, uh, while the feed-forward signal is not. And conversely, you can block the feed-forward signal by an amperi receptor blocker like CNQX, uh, which doesn't uh, interfere that much with the recurrent signals. So indeed, indeed, uh, pointing out that there might be different synaptic mechanisms related to feedforward and recurrent processing. And that triggered the idea that maybe recurrent processing uh, is re much more related to inducing synaptic plasticity learning, uh, in other words, uh, changing your brain. Uh, and then, of course, you know, ultimately this could imply that the difference between conscious and unconscious processing is that conscious processing changes your brain because it induces synaptic plasticity, whereas unconscious processing does not change your brain, which at least to me gives a so, gives sort of a fundamental hunch or, or, or intuition about what consciousness is really about and what and what the difference is, what the real difference is between conscious and unconscious processing. But but, but would you be willing to, to really say like well and. and Necessary condition for learning in the brain is is consciousness. Yeah. So uh, you know, the, uh, 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 let's say a funny prediction of that idea would be that there's no such thing as unconscious learning, uh, which, which, which you know is already contradicted by the existing literature. Well, actually, if you look at it closely, it's not because all the instances of unconscious learning that I've come across are mostly about what I would call inattentional learning, which is something else entirely. Uh, so, all the instances where you find so-called unconscious learning are in fact instances where uh, you might, well, you, you can fairly well assume that you still have these reentrant processes going on on a local scale, although not at a global scale, so that indeed people are not able to report about these stimuli that evoke the, the learning. Uh, but for example, unconscious learning has never in my mind at least, been convincingly shown in cases where you can really be sure that there is, not, that there is no uh, uh, recurrent processing going on. Like, for example, when you have a fully masked visual stimulus, which is only evoked feed-forward processing, you will never find any learning related to such a fully masked stimulus. It's only in cases where, where you rather manipulate attentional reportability where you find so-called so uh, unconscious learning. How about motor learning? Like in conditioning or forms of learning dependent on the cerebellum? I'm not an expert on that, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the fifth they amendment. Exist. The fifth amendment. They exist, I'm <laughs> telling you. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, the cerebellum, that, that was already pointed out, of course, in, in various talks. Uh, the cerebellum is a very strange system in the sense that uh, even though you might have recurrence there, there's still no, it's probably not associated with conscious experiences. and mm -hmm. it's. Uh, I I have nothing to say about the cerebellum. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, it's too scary, no? <laughs> yeah. So now look to, to yeah. so if, to conclude, I have two questions for you. So on the one hand, um, 
you you went on this trajectory actually being more very closely to the data physiologists gathering data in, in monkey and, and other animals and now you're moving more to these really challenging questions in the domain of consciousness and given that experience what's what's the the victor lama law you think we should all adhere to in our study of the brain and consciousness well i think there are two laws uh the first law is that you you cannot know what either someone else or yourself is conscious of uh, at any particular moment in time. You, you simply don't know what the content of consciousness is. And of course the upshot of that is that it's useless trying to find neural correlates of consciousness. Uh, and the, I would say the second law is, uh, sort of following from that of course, uh, that we don't need neural correlates but we need neural arguments to tell us what consciousness really is. And if I, if I put all the neural arguments together, together of course with psychological insights and introspective insights, uh, I have the strong idea that the fundamental ingredient for consciousness is recurrence. So now, if five years from now I go up to Amsterdam and I'm going to find you and chase you down, and ask you like, okay, Victor, five years back you made this prediction, I'm going to check with you whether it was right or wrong. What's this one prediction you were willing to, to stick your neck out for today? Oh, well, one of the predictions would be like the things we discussed about learning. Uh, this, is, this, this is something I, I, I really like very much because, you know, the link between reentrant connections and, and NMDA receptor activation uh, that's really putting some sort of fundamental uh, ground under this whole idea of what consciousness is about. So uh, I think we, at that point we will have proven that there's no such thing as really unconscious learning and that you, for example, uh, that, you, that you only get, say, visual learning from, uh, from inattention paradigms and not from really, well, and not from masking paradigms, for example. Wonderful. Victor Lama, thank you very much for this interview. Well, you're welcome.